Hello, welcome to the Machete and Quilt Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt. I'm the author of the fantasy novel, Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair, which I will read in its entirety, one or two chapters per episode on this podcast. This episode will cover chapters 22 and 23. We'll start with the aftermath of the creature's attack that killed Walker and incapacitated Richard. Then we'll catch back up with Justan and George as they set sail toward the Northern lands. This probably won't make sense to you if you didn't already hear the earlier chapters, so I encourage you to go back and listen to those first. I'll be here waiting for you when you're ready, and I'm so grateful that you've joined us on this journey. If you would like to read ahead and support my creative endeavors, please consider buying the book, Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair. It's available as an ebook, paperback, or hardcover wherever books are sold online. Or you can grab the ebook on Kindle Unlimited if you are a subscriber there. Signed copies of the book are available for sale on my website, ryanhoytauthor.com. Let's get into the episode and read chapters 22 and 23 of Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair. Keep in mind that I'm narrating the books for the podcast, but this isn't as clean as a professional paid audiobook. I hope that you'll still enjoy the story. Stay tuned after the chapter for a behind-the-scenes look. Thank you for listening. Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair, Book One of the Epistel Chronicles by Ryan Hoyt. Chapter 22. Gemma continued to sit on the sidewalk in shock. She was in shock over witnessing the disturbing and sudden transformation of Walker's body. She was in shock over the death of the boy she had grown up with, dated during college, broken up with, resented, and reunited with in the strangest of places. She was in shock over her friend Richard nearly getting crushed to death by the impossible creature that seemed to have formed from Walker's innards. And she was in shock that one of Richard's companions from the great journey was here, kneeling over Richard, holding Richard's head in his lap. She recognized Arnhem from all the illustrations in Justan's books. She didn't, however, recognize the boy who accompanied him. Arnhem's young companion had run off down an alley a few minutes prior in search of something. With everything going through her head, Gemma didn't catch what it was he was looking for. So she sat, tears streaming down her face, right hand still gripping the machete so tightly that her knuckles turned white. When she realized she was doing it, she set the machete down on the sidewalk next to her. She turned toward the tavern and realized that despite all the commotion out here, Nobody had come out the door to help or even just to watch. Nobody had strolled by on the sidewalk. No riders on horses had come down the street. Gemma jumped when she heard a sound at the mouth of the alley. She turned to see the boy approaching, pushing a cart that looked strikingly similar to the one Richard had used back in Pine Drop. Somehow, that small connection helped her snap out of her state of shock. She stood up and walked toward Arnhem, Richard, and the boy with the cart. I don't know if I can lift him by myself, Arnhem said to them. Gemma and the boy both nodded. Gemma took Richard's right leg, the boy took the left leg, and Arnhem gripped Richard's upper body, using the crook of an elbow to carefully cradle Richard's head. One, two, three, Arnhem counted, and they lifted in unison. Arnhem grunted loudly under the weight. They gently laid Richard down in the cart, though he was comically too large for it. His legs hung over the edge. 
Gemma lifted his dangling arms and crossed them over his torso. She ran back to the packs, grabbed two blankets, and placed one under Richard's head for support and spread the other over his body for warmth. He looked swollen all over, which she hadn't noticed right away. There was blood coming out of one of his ears. She was certain he had at least broken some ribs when the creature had squeezed him tight. What are we going to do with him? Gemma asked. There's only one person around here who may be able to heal him, Arnim said. The Witch of Ferrothon. Gemma shook with fear. She knew that Richard's plan all along had been to go to the witch, but even an hour earlier, Gemma hadn't believed the woman could actually be a real sorceress. Nor had she believed this town was under any kind of magical spell. But after the events that had occurred since they had entered this pristine yet silent town, she was willing to let go of some of her skepticism. No parasite, insect, or reptile in Epistel could have been responsible for what happened to Walker. It had to be some sick, dark magic. My name is Arnim, by the way. Oh, yes, I assume so. You look just like the pictures in the books. Just older, I guess, Gemma said. The boy let out a good-natured laugh. She turned to him. My name is Gemma. I said the same thing to Arnim when I met him, said the boy. About the pictures in the book, I mean. I'm Denny. Now that she was a little calmer than before, Gemma observed Denny for the first time. He was unnaturally thin. Something Gemma could tell came from years of hunger, and not from the few days they must have been traveling to Ferrothon. His eyes were a dark blue, and Gemma couldn't help but notice there was something very deep and knowing in them. It was like he didn't see her as a stranger, but as someone he had known for quite some time. Have we met before? Gemma asked, unable to understand the look in Denny's eyes. Well, I've seen you before, if that's what you mean, Denny replied. Where? Gemma asked. The boy looked at Arnim, as if to ask for permission. Arnim gently nodded to him. I have these visions, Denny said with some hesitation, in my sleep. My parents had them too, and they were taken away for it. I can see some things about the future. Just quick glimpses. I have no control over it. You saw me in these visions then? This was the second time in a few minutes that Gemma realized she hadn't outright disbelieved some claim of the supernatural. You knew I would be here? Well, it started off with Richard the Elusive. I knew he would be here, and things looked different. He was being attacked by that monster, but it was in a cave in my dreams. Not everything was the same. Was I with him in the dreams? Gemma asked. Not at first, Denny replied. He was alone on some kind of mission, which he failed to accomplish once the monster killed him. It was the same thing for several nights, but then one night, just a couple weeks ago, a girl came into the picture. I couldn't see her clearly at first, but as the nights went on, I got a better look. It was you. If you guys knew this would happen, why didn't you get here sooner? Gemma asked. Denny and Arnim looked at each other with a mix of guilt and sorrow. This time it was Arnim who spoke. We tried to, Arnim said. We wanted to get here in time to stop this from happening, but it just didn't work out. Anytime we thought we were gaining ground on the journey, we would get turned around again. I've never been a very good leader, especially in the woods. I always relied on my companions to guide us. We finally made it here just as that creature burst out of your other friend. Denny went on. 
But what the dreams have been showing me the last couple nights was that this would be your moment. Your moment to step up and be a hero, Arnhem said, finishing off Denny's sentence. I know that sounds terribly hollow now that Richard is injured, but we felt like the dreams were telling us to help you in the aftermath, not to interrupt the attack from happening. A hero? Gemma couldn't believe they had said that. Like this is some kind of storybook? We are real people, not characters in some tale. Everyone has a role to play when the stakes are high, Arnhem said. I ran from my destiny, shied away from it until my best friend made me a part of the solution when things turned dark for Epistel. Maekel pulled me in with him, and we set things right along with Richard and Justan. Something evil is at work here in the North. If Denny's visions aren't preparing each of us for something big, I don't understand the point of it all. An agonized groan from Richard ended their conversation. We must get rid of the witch quickly, Denny said. My visions haven't shown me anything beyond this point. I can't guarantee that he'll survive. Gemma grabbed her pack and Richard's, leaving walkers behind for good. She gathered the bow and the remaining arrows, as well as the machete, and walked back over to the cart, sliding some of the items in beside Richard. Denny picked up Richard's sword and set it in the cart as well. Arnhem started pushing the cart up the street, and Denny and Gemma followed. They hurried through the town, heading northeast up the middle of the streets. Gemma was no longer surprised that they didn't pass a single person on the way out. There were two other taverns that appeared to have life in them, based on the sounds of joyous laughter and chatter that leaked out, but no people were visible from the outside. Gemma and her new companions didn't speak the rest of their journey through the eerie town, but Gemma thought she heard the boy muttering some strange words. She couldn't understand what he was saying, and she didn't feel like she knew him well enough to ask. But she felt no threat from Denny, nor from the man who claimed to be Richard's close friend. They arrived at a road that led them up a slight incline to a large manor that overlooked the town of Farathon to the southwest, the Amasa Lake to the northwest, and the foothills of the Fingers to the east. Even from a distance, Gemma could tell it was nearly the size of King Davin's castle back in Capital City. This was not quite a castle, but for all intents and purposes, it was the same thing. Instead of housing royalty, this palace held the feared witch, protector of this town, and whatever remained of all the children of Farathon who had been given to her as a sacrifice decades earlier. The grounds of the estate were as well-kept as the rest of the town and its surrounding farms, but Gemma saw no gardeners toiling away at the landscaping. The darkness of the clouds had not abated in the hour since they had left downtown Farathon. The path to the manor was lined with dozens of statues of grotesque and monstrous characters. Some were leonine creatures with snarling mouths showing sharp teeth. Others were large birds of prey in flight, with razor-sharp talons ready to pierce some imaginary victim. Some of the more disturbing ones were human-like, but with odd features, such as the heads of horses, fingernails that looked like claws, or the legs of beasts. A set of stairs rose to a great arched porch. Two massive iron doors stood at the end. The tunnel-like arches were lined with burning torches, but the light didn't stretch far. It felt like a dark cave leading up to the entrance. Because of the stairs, they opted to leave the cart and the unconscious Richard down below. 
They would retrieve him once they had requested the help they needed and knew they were welcome. Arnim was the first to reach the top of the steps. He continued walking toward the door. Gemma was just behind him, and Denny brought up the rear. After walking a few feet across the tunneled porch, Gemma stopped and turned. What is it, Denny? she asked. Behind her, at the top of the stairs, Denny stood in fear. The cave, he replied. In my dreams, the cave I saw, it was like this porch, only deeper and darker. It ended in the lair of the monster that would kill Richard. Arnim turned and walked over to them. But Denny, he said, Richard already faced off against the creature from your dreams. You said so yourself. Things from my dreams do change, that's true. Even so, I'm frightened of this place, Arnim. So am I, Arnim replied. So am I. But we have to move on regardless. For Richard, come, my little friend. We have a protector here with us, and we've seen her in action once already. Gemma thought she caught a wink from Arnim as he glanced over to her. He needed her to be the brave one, it seemed. She smiled and stood tall, then walked over to Denny and took him by the hand. Arnim is right, she said, trying her best to sound courageous and heroic. If we could take on that creature back in town, not to mention surviving the decimated forest, we can do anything. Gemma led the way with Denny at her side. Arnim stayed close behind them. At the end of the porch, they looked up at the large doors. Arnim closed a fist and knocked, which made very little sound due to the thickness of the metal. Denny noticed that there was a rope hanging down from a large bell. He looked to Arnim and Gemma, and they nodded to him. Denny pulled, and the bell clanged loudly. He hurried back over between his companions. After more than a minute had passed, they heard a noise on the other side of the doors. Then the doors slowly opened from the inside. The creaking sounds the hinges made caused Gemma to think that they must not have been opened in quite some time. The light that shone from inside was almost blinding after the dimness of the porch. Warmth flowed out, greeting the travelers, along with the welcoming smell of fresh-baked breads and cakes. And there, standing before them, were more than twenty children, well-dressed and smiling. The oldest appeared to be close in age to Denny. Several were as young as four or five years old. Welcome to Farathon Manor one of the older boys said. The lady of the house has asked that you join us inside. Gemma, Arnim, and Denny stood in stunned silence. A little girl who looked about five walked up to Gemma and took her by the hand. Come on, the girl said in a sweet voice as she smiled up at Gemma. Um, Gemma struggled to speak. We have a friend who's injured. He's down below the porch. Four of the older children stepped outside, one of them turned to Gemma. We will take great caution in bringing him in to the lady of the house, he said. She will take good care of him, as she does all of us, and all of Farathon. And so Gemma, Arnim, and Denny were led inside the oddly inviting mansion to meet the fabled Witch of Farathon. Chapter 23 George's first two days at sea were long, bouncy, and sickening. He had never been on a ship before, and certainly not on a sea with waves that swelled and crashed. It also didn't help that the crew of the ales and sails was constantly, well, drinking ales while manning the sails. Maybe manning wasn't the proper term, 
The captain and the entire crew of the brazenly named vessel were women, so operating was probably a more appropriate term. And operating the ship they were, it wasn't the fault of their ales or their sails that the tide was particularly strong that second morning, nor that the wind and waves were knocking the ship all around. It only got worse the farther north they sailed. Two nights earlier, after they had left Justan's estate, George had followed Justan to the nearest port town, aptly called Portsville, and into the dockside bar, aptly called Drink Lest Ye Sink. Can't we just ride northeast and cut through Pine Drop? George had pleaded. We're heading the completely wrong way. We're heading toward the Western Sea. That's the point, my good man, Justan had said. When he had arrived at the guest house earlier that night, George could tell immediately that there was something wrong. Justan was clearly hiding some kind of emotion beneath his big, boisterous exterior. We're getting ourselves a boat. We have some lost time to make up for. There's something we have to do to help your sister and Richard. What did you learn about the situation? George had asked as they'd ridden side by side on their galloping horses. He'd looked over at Justan, who was lost in thought. Well, I learned that Rodnego was keeping some things from me, and I learned that Richard has been writing to me for help for years. I feel partially responsible for whatever situation your sister walked into. I'm not sure what it is, only that it isn't good. And so they had ridden on. They'd passed through the streets of nearby Portsville, which seemed to be a collection of taverns, cargo warehouses, seafood restaurants, and more taverns. Justan had dismounted in front of the Drink Lest Ye Sink, which hung halfway over a wharf. Part of the building was on stilts that plunged down into the water below. George followed Justan's lead, dismounting and tying up his horse outside the tavern. This is the best place to find a crew, Justan said as he placed a hand on George's shoulder. Just let me do the talking, and don't say a word about Richard or our mission. Justan turned and headed into the tavern, and George followed. Before he went inside, he saw the painted sign next to the door, which featured an illustration of a woman standing on an anchor and holding a large glass of ale as waves crashed below her. The inside was loud, the crowd full of rowdy drunks. They've certainly lived up to the first half of the place's name, George thought, but let's hope whoever we hire won't sink our mission too. Well, if it isn't just Stan the Jester, a woman's voice called out. George watched as Justan turned to his right and put on a playful smile. Linnell, he called out with a forced laugh. You old pirate, you. You don't write or visit me these days. Well, that's because I don't fraternize with cheats and liars, she replied coldly. She turned toward George and frowned before looking back at Justan. I see you finally ditched Rod Nago. Congratulations. Hey, Roddy's not such a bad guy. We just got off the road and needed some time apart. Listen, Linnell, I... That's Captain Linnell to you, she interrupted. Uh, sorry, Captain Linnell. I need a ship, and I need it now, Justan said. There's nobody better than you for a job like this. Job like what, Justan? Linnell crossed her arms. What kind of garbage are you trying to throw at me this time? Uh, let's have a seat, Justan said. He led Linnell to a recently vacated booth and motioned for George to follow. Once they were sitting, he said, this is my friend, George Calvertson. George, this is Captain Linnell Nightstar. George and Linnell nodded to each other. 
We have an emergency involving a very old friend of mine, Justan said in hushed tones. An emergency that requires us to head north. How far north we talking? Linnell asked. Her glare extended to George this time as well. Uh, just north of the Amasa River, Justan responded. So you've come to me because you think I won't turn you in for requesting a job like this? I've come to you because I know I can trust you, Justan said. And I know that if anyone is talented enough to get us past the Royal Navy patrol ships unseen, it's you, Nell. There was a long moment of tense silence born out of whatever awkward past misdeeds had occurred between Justan and the captain. Linnell rolled up her sleeves as she considered the proposition, but George couldn't help breaking the silence. Are those kitties? He asked with genuine excitement. What? Justan asked, turning to George. He flashed the younger man a bewildered look. They are indeed, Linnell said. Her tough demeanor instantly mutated into a warmth that George soaked in. The captain rolled her sleeve up farther to reveal a mural of cats, tattooed elaborately, across her left arm and shoulder. We have a couple dozen little ones on board. I have six at home. Oh, and look at this. George rolled up his own sleeves, and everyone watching them was shocked to see that the shy young man's surprisingly muscular arms were adorned with illustrations of his own feline friends. Linnell's crew gathered round, patting George on the back and offering to share their drinks with him. George looked over at Justan and laughed joyously. Well, I like this one, Justan, Linnell said. Okay, I'll do the job, but it'll cost extra. Three times my normal fee, and all of it up front. Plus extra for the casks you drain of my ship, and whatever the tab is for my crew here tonight. Well, I won't be drinking on the ship at least, Justan said, and Linnell broke into laughter. The day Justan the drunk goes on an entire trip sober is the day the world nears its end. I'll believe it when I see it. Justan didn't respond. Instead, he looked at her with a dire expression. Her smile quickly faded. Wow, it really is something serious then, Linnell said soberly. Three times the fee it is. I'll pay my cruise tab tonight. I was only kidding about that part. Thanks, Linnell, Justan said. It'll just be me and the cat boy here. No cargo. We need speed and secrecy, though, please. You got it. We can be out of here in an hour. The sooner the better if you want to keep this under wraps. We're docked at Pier 11. Head over there while I gather the rest of the ladies. And so, two rough days passed at sea. Even though it looked like a straight northerly journey on the map, they had to head west, not only to attempt to find smoother waters, which they clearly did not find, but also to avoid the patrol ships that guarded the coast. The Royal Navy had several imposing vessels stationed in the northern waters of Epistel, particularly to ensure that no sailors made their way north to the mouth of the River of Giants. George missed his cats fiercely, but he was comforted by a deck full of new furry companions. It was all that got him through the voyage. True to his word, Justan didn't drink at all, and as far as George could tell from the expressions on the crew members' faces, that seemed to be quite a big deal for him. However, true to their ship's name, the crew engaged in quite a bit of drinking. It was nearly as rowdy on board the ship as it had been in the Drink Lest Ye Sink tavern back in Portsville, and for all the dizziness and vomiting George had experienced over those two days, he may as well have been drinking with them the whole time. At least there would have been something joyous about the trip. 
How can there possibly be anything left inside of you? Justan asked. He laughed as he patted George's back hard yet playfully, like he was burping a baby. George raised his head from over the portside railing. How can you possibly be so cheerful? He responded. I think I left my stomach back on the docks in Portsville. I love being on the open sea. Rodnego hired Captain Linnell and her crew years ago for a coastal tour. That was a wild time, let me tell you. Sure didn't stay sober on that one, but I couldn't outdrink these ladies. Back then, Linnell was the first mate, and the captain was, Destination ahead, a voice called from across the ship, interrupting Justan. The crew members moved to their positions, preparing to bring the boat in closer to shore. Justan pulled George away from the railing and led him to the starboard side. In the distance was a beautiful sandy beach. Beyond that strip of beach, a forest grew, the trees climbing up the foothills. Beyond that, mountains stretched up, and on the southwestern edge of the range stood a lone, tall tower. Well, that's it, Justan said. The western watch of the Visenya, the ancient ones. I don't know what you're up to, Justan, said a voice behind them. George turned to see Captain Linnell eyeing them suspiciously. Just don't let it be known that my ship brought you here. I could lose my maritime license for this one. And George and I would end up in prison, Justan responded with a wink. I wouldn't do that to Georgie boy here any more than I would do it to you, Nell. Well, this is about as close as we get, boys. Now would be a good time to gather your bags and load them into the boat. That extra fee I charged you will just about cover a replacement boat and oars. Wait, George said to the captain. You won't wait for us out here to return? How will we get back? That was never part of the plan, Georgie, Justan said. We don't know how this is going to go, but we'll play it by ear. Justan led George down into the cabin they shared with the crew. They grabbed their belongings, returned to the deck, and tossed the bags into the smaller boat. Once they had climbed in, the crew lowered the boat down to the water. So long, boys, Captain Linnell called down to them with a rowdy laugh. Until next time, Justan said. There won't be a next time, she called back. Unless your money turns out to be fake, then I'll hunt you down. Justan seemed to find this hilarious, based on the hearty laugh he let out. George sat in stunned silence. Time to put yourself to work, Justan said to George. Let's get rowing before we drag back out to sea. They eventually rowed to shore, but the current took them much farther north than where they had started out. Justan pulled the boat up to the beach, away from the reach of the waves and under the first trees that lined the sand. George only hoped they'd be able to find the boat again if they needed it. He looked out to sea and watched the ales and sails fade into the horizon. He tried to swallow away his fear. He couldn't help but feel that he would never see civilization again. He turned away from the ocean and panicked. Justan? George called. Where are you? Instead of answering, Justan sent a fruit flying right at George's head. It hit him below the hairline and fell to the ground. He bent down and picked it up to examine it. It's a ray fruit, Justan said as he emerged from the trees with an armful of the fuzzy yellow fruits. They grow along the beaches up here in the north. It's been a quarter of a century since I've had one. Since anyone in Epstel has had one. George furrowed his brow and then took a bite. The juice dripped down his chin. His expression remained blank for a few moments as he chewed. Then his eyes widened. This is amazing, he exclaimed. Sour, but not too much. Sweet, but not overwhelming. And that juice. 
He didn't let the next one hit him in the head. He caught it this time and devoured it. Justan looked on and laughed. Let's fill up our packs with more of these, and then we'll get on our way, Justan said. They walked in among the trees, picked a few more ray fruits each, and then began their trek toward the tower in the mountains. Even in the pale moonlight, George could tell that the tower that loomed above them dwarfed even the highest point of King Davin's castle back home in Capital City. Even more impressive, it was built on the steep edge of the mountain. As they approached, George nearly hyperventilated. The tower appeared to be ready to tumble down on top of them. It stood like that for thousands of years, Justan reassured him as they stopped for the night. I think it'll stand at least one more night. They had originally intended to reach the tower by nightfall, but Justan had underestimated the distance and the steepness of the hills they had to climb. Instead, they found a nice clearing, started a campfire, and roasted some sort of feline creature that Justan managed to catch. Why did you want to rush here instead of wherever Richard and Gemma are? George asked. You've been quite evasive about this whole time. We couldn't talk about it on the ship. I trust Linnell enough to sail us here and keep quiet about it, but tell her any specifics and she or her crew may give us up to the committee. The reward for information on violators of their laws is quite high. She would have been locked up too, though, George said. She sailed past the border of the River of Giants. Well, the committee would have looked past that if they had any excuse to lock me up. They've been trying for the last two decades. Doing what we're here to do would be more than enough for that. And what are we here to do, Justan? To signal for help, Justan said, from the lands beyond, from the Ancient Ones. They set out early the next morning. George's back ached. He had never slept outdoors before, and he wasn't sure if he could even count the night that had just passed, as he had hardly slept a wink. He was shocked by how rested and full of energy Justan seemed. Lying out under the stars must have brought back memories of his youth and the more pleasant aspects of the great journey. The climb up the rest of the mountain was tricky and seemingly perilous in some spots. Great call on not doing this at night, George yelled ahead at Justan, who looked back and winked. After another couple of hours, George pulled himself up and over the crest of the steepest peak yet. He lay on his belly, face down in the dirt. Justan began laughing joyously, standing over George. We did it, Georgie boy. George raised his head, still panting. He looked up to see the ancient western watch towering above them, only a few hundred feet away. Justan turned and headed toward it, arms held out as if proclaiming victory. Woo! Justan hollered, and it echoed all around them. His excitement was infectious, and George broke out in laughter. They arrived at the door to the tower. You do have the key, don't you? George asked, half worried and half joking. Justan smiled at him, then reached for the handle of the great steel door. The handle gave way, but the door didn't. Justan's smile faded. Well, he said, turning to George with a defeated look on his face. It appears we'll have to go back home. It's locked. What? But we can't go back home after... The smile returned as Justan pushed his full weight against the door. It creaked open loudly, though it was barely audible under Justan's roaring laughter. Very funny, George said. A cloud of dust puffed out of the doorway. Wings fluttered somewhere inside the dim tower. Justan let out another ecstatic, 
Woo! It echoed even more inside the tower. George followed him inside. George didn't quite know what he expected to find. Maybe the interior would be as elaborate as the castle he had visited with his mother during King Davin's annual banquet for the servants and groundskeepers and their families. Plush red carpets that made him wish he could run about barefoot. An ever-present inviting warmth. Sofas that seemed so elaborate and stiff that he didn't think anyone had ever dared to sit on them. Instead, the tower's lower level was a massive empty cavern of a room with crumbling pieces of stone scattered over a filthy floor. The skeletal remains of several rodents were strewn about. Narrow window slits high up on the walls let in a little light, but not so much as to make the place vulnerable to attackers. A warm and welcoming palace, this was not. A large staircase spiraled upward along the rounded walls of the building. Onward and upward, my little friend, Justan said joyfully. I can hardly feel my legs after all that climbing, George replied. Justan dropped his pack and began to ascend the tower stairs. George sighed, set his own pack down, and reluctantly followed. They climbed floor after floor, and George regretted not bringing his water skin. The higher levels were broken up into rooms with larger windows that provided more light. Justan didn't stop climbing to explore the rooms. He said there would be time for that later. Still, George was surprised to see glimpses of elaborately carved chairs and tables, inviting sitting rooms, what appeared to be an armory, and much more. Of course, it was all completely caked in an unhealthy mix of dust and bird droppings, then further draped in decades of spiderwebs and crusted with rodent urine. George lost count of the levels they ascended before they finally made it to the very top floor. Rather than a penthouse or even a watchman's perch, the top floor reminded George of a giant furnace. The openings in the wall were massive, and the wind terrified George. There would be no saving him if a gust knocked him right out and down the full height of the tower, or if he was on the south side of the room, down the side of the mountain. This is the great hearth of the Western Watch, Justan said. When the flames are stoked, it can be seen for hundreds, even thousands of miles. We'll be able to send a signal from here. And so they did. George was shocked by how easily Justan got the flames going. Of course, the smoke was quite black at first, what with all that dust that had accumulated over the decades. They descended the stairs, coughing from the fumes. When they reached the ground floor, George looked to Justan, as if to ask what was next. Justan grinned at him. Now we wait for help to arrive. All right, that was chapters 22 and 23 of Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair by me, Ryan Hoyt. I remember being really thrilled as I wrote this a few years ago to finally converge Arnim and Denny's storyline with Richard and Gemma's journey. But I had the same question as Gemma. If Denny could see the future, why didn't they arrive sooner to prevent the attack? I'm not sure how satisfied Gemma or you as the listeners or readers were with that answer, but really Denny just doesn't know enough about his abilities yet. And that's something that will be explored not just in this novel, but also the sequels that I'm writing as I record this. I was also excited to introduce this sort of gothic castle or mansion at the outskirts of town. I'm a big fan of gothic and horror novels, so I wanted this place to seem super creepy from the outside, including these grotesque gargoyle statues. 
But when they finally get to the door, they're greeted by a group of totally normal-looking children, which throws them off. I also imagine the smell of freshly baked cookies wafting out of the as the door opens, making it seem super inviting inside. If you want to know more about these kids and how they ended up with the witch in the mansion, do I have a story for you? Uh, my novella, The Witch of Ferrothon, explains it all. You can get that book on hardcover or paperback from Amazon or signed hardcovers on my website, ryanhoyauthor.com. You can also get the ebook for free when you sign up for my mailing list at my website. All right, so after that, we got back to Justan and George. I loved the idea of the all-female crew of pirates who were super rowdy, the total opposite of George, but still very much similar to Justan when he's drinking. Then Justan is trying his best to go sober here, so his energy doesn't match theirs anymore, despite their history with each other. And uh, when they finally arrive uh, where they're going, at the far western edge of the northern country of Emerson, it's also the same country where Richard and Gemma were heading toward and almost got to before they hit the town of Ferrothon. Taking the boat was totally easier than walking through that creepy forest, it seems. In the tower, Justan set fire to that signal uh, to signal the Ancient Ones, and now they'll sit around waiting for help to arrive. Perhaps with the help of the Ancient Ones, they'll be able to ride in and save the day to whatever danger that Richard and Gemma may be facing. We'll see. Thank you so much for listening. Remember that you can buy the book everywhere books are sold, including signed copies at ryanhoyauthor.com, or you can read it on Kindle Unlimited. Connect with me on social media, which you'll find links to at ryanhoyauthor.com. The music in the podcast is from a project of mine called Before the World Moved On. Thank you so much for listening to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt. We'll continue our journey together through the forest of despair on the next episode. Take care. Take care.